Hello, and welcome to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 1, Let There Be Greece. The first part of this episode will be a brief introduction to the podcast, who I am, what my motivation is for doing this, and what I hope to achieve. And in the second part, we will describe the geography of Greece and its natural resources. My name is Ryan Stitt. I am not a professional historian, just an enthusiastic amateur. I studied classical languages and ancient history at the University of Alabama, as well as some postgraduate work at UCLA. But for personal reasons, I stepped away from academia and ultimately decided to commission to the United States Air Force. But being away from academia doesn't mean I love ancient history any less. In fact, it's the opposite. I actually really miss it. Except for the exams, of course. I don't miss those. But ever since I studied abroad in Greece, as a bright-eyed undergraduate, I have been in love with Greek culture and the ancient world in general. You can most definitely call me a Philhellene. A modern-day Hadrian, if you will. Minus those imperial powers, sadly. I am also a huge fan of history podcasts, and I've been listening since 2008. Some of the ones that have influenced me are Mike Duncan's History of Rome, Scott Chesworth's The Ancient World, Jamie Redfern's History of Series, Dominic Perry's Egyptian History, Rob Monaco's podcast History of Our World. I could go on and on and on. But as I listened to more and more podcasts, it didn't seem like there was much out there covering Greek history. Sure, there are podcasts that deal with Greece, but only from a general aspect as one cog in the machine that is Western civilization or world history, or they deal with a particular subject or time period of Greek civilization, like mythology or the aforementioned Alexander the Great. But they left me wanting to know more, to dig deeper into the details. I also found absolutely nothing concerning Greek history after the death of Alexander the Great. In fact, Most college courses and textbooks either end with his death or skip over the Hellenistic period, only mentioning Greek existence in their relation to the Roman world. But those three centuries in between are a fascinating time of transformation, culturally and politically, as Greek culture was diffused throughout the entire eastern Mediterranean. So I figured that I would throw my hat in the proverbial ring and give the people what they're looking for, or at least what I was looking for. The podcast begins in Greece's mythological past, explaining what the Greeks themselves believed the origin of their universe was. Then we delve into the early archaeological evidence for humans in Greece and the way this society developed before the advent of writing. Over the course of our story, we will cover almost 2,000 years of Greek civilization, from the Bronze Age period to the Roman conquest. I want to tell the long history of a fundamental civilization bringing to life the fascinating stories of the ancient sources. But this isn't a podcast just about stories, and it won't just be political history either. There too will be a big emphasis on social history. That is how the people actually live their day-to-day lives, as well as their culture, their art, architecture, philosophy, literature, religion, science, and all those other awesome aspects of the Greek achievement. This will be a comprehensive, in-depth, political, social, and cultural history of Greece. So get excited. I know I am.
I should note though, this is my first attempt at podcasting, so I welcome any and all suggestions. The podcast, hopefully, will be released every week, probably closer to the weekend. If there will be delays, I'll let you know. The information and materials used to generate this podcast will come from a wide variety of sources, both primary and secondary, and those will be listed on the companion website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I'll also post pictures, maps, and other information to supplement the podcast. So let's get started. Out of all of the many great civilizations in the ancient world, what was it that made the Greeks so special? And why are we millennia later so radically linked to them? Well, those are some of the very important questions we must keep in mind during the extent of this podcast. In the Western world, we can't possibly understand our society if we don't understand its Greek origins and how it developed, as there's a great deal of continuity from ancient Greece to the modern world. Greece was the cornerstone of Western civilization. But the question is, how did this all come about? Before we begin, however, we must first describe the geography and resources of Greece, because we cannot effectively understand the history of Greece without first examining the land of Greece itself, because their physical environment was a major factor in their historical development. But first, it's very important to realize that when we make mention of Greece, or the Greeks for that matter, that there was not a Greek nation as in the modern sense of the word. The region that is now known as Greece was made up of several individual autonomous states. They all had a great deal in common, like language and religion, but it took external threats for them to come together and forge any sort of singular entity. These instances were rare and short-lived, however. Secondly, they did not call themselves Greeks. That is the Latin name given to them by the Romans. The Greeks call themselves Hellenes, and their country is known as Hellas, as it is still today. To eliminate any confusion, I'll be calling the land Greece, and its inhabitants Greek. Once Greek-speaking peoples actually arrive in Greece, that is. But I am getting ahead of myself. More on that later. Now into geography. When you look at a map of Europe, there are three massive southern promontories. The Iberian Peninsula is in the west. The Italian peninsula is in the center, and Greece is situated on the southern portion of the Balkan Peninsula, which juts deep into the eastern Mediterranean Sea, at the crossroads of Europe, Asia, and Africa. Greece is made up of a large mainland and two additional smaller peninsulas, the Halkidiki in the northeast and the Peloponnese in the southwest, which is separated from the mainland by the Isthmus of Corinth. But the Greeks inhabited an area far beyond the mainland. The various islands to the west, in the Ionian Sea, and east, in the Aegean Sea, as well as the large islands of Crete and Rhodes to the far south, were all Greek islands from the earliest times. For reasons that will be laid out later in this podcast, the western coast of Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, which is also called Anatolia, will become full of Greeks too. And even further down the road, Greeks would colonize various outposts on Cyprus, northern Africa, southern France, the Black Sea, and in southern Italy and Sicily, an area that was referred to by the Romans as Magna Graecia, or Greater Greece, because many famous and prosperous Greek cities had emerged there. We will go in further detail about all of this later. For now, though, 
Greece equals the mainland and the Ionian and Aegean seas. A big reason that the Greeks didn't unite into one political entity lies in the fact that almost 80% of their land is mountainous, and so they were often isolated from one another. There's also thousands of little islands inhabited by the Greeks that made complete unity a tall task. Still, military alliances were formed when dire situations called for it. Furthermore, only about 20% of Greece's land is considered good farmland, most of which was in Thessaly in the northeast and Messenia in the southwest. In the highlands, the soil is thin, and in Attica, the region where Athens is located, the soil is clay, which is not great for growing food, but would later be a boon for the pottery industry. The Pindus mountain range lies across the heart of Greece in a northwest to southeast direction. The Olympus mountain range divides Thessaly with Macedonia, and its most famous mountain, where the gods lived, Mount Olympus, is the highest point in Greece at 2,900 meters. The mountains were originally more wooded than they are now, with cedar, cypress, and pine to supply timber for buildings and ships. As time went on, however, forests became depleted and the more popular regions thus needed to import timber. Central and western Greece contained many high and steep peaks intersected by many canyons and gorges, including Meteora and Vicus Gorge, the latter being one of the largest in the world at more than 1,100 meters. The many mountains and hills and the scarcity of roads good enough for wheeled vehicles meant overland travel was difficult. So when the Greeks wished to trade, to make military expeditions, or simply to communicate with other Greeks, by far the easiest way to travel was by sea. The rugged coastline of the mainland is very long, roughly 8,500 miles, and offers relatively few good harbors, but their ships didn't have to sail far away from the coast. In fact, it was unusual for the Greeks to be out of sight of land. In the Aegean Sea, where there are more than 2,000 islands, they could effectively island hop across the sea. Furthermore, the narrow Aegean Sea tied the Greeks to the Near East and Egypt, commercially and culturally. With the exception of marble and clay, Greece is not well endowed with raw materials. And so, the need to trade, especially for bronze, destined the Greeks very early in their history to take to the sea and mingle with the peoples from the older civilizations to their south and east, from which they learned new technologies, religious ideas, and so forth. The Gulf of Corinth almost cuts Greece in two, except for the very narrow strip of land called the Isthmus of Corinth. Although the Corinthians built a paved roadway across the Isthmus, with grooves for wheels on which ships could be transported, it was usually necessary for travelers to and from the west side of Greece to make the long voyage around the Peloponnese. This was one of the reasons why those who lived in the solidly mountainous areas of northwestern Greece were rather cut off from the other more advanced regions. Nowadays, there is a canal cut through the rock of the Isthmus. The weather in Greece is semi-arid, or what is known as Mediterranean, with long, hot, dry summers and short, mild but wet winters, when most of the rain falls. This varies between regions, of course. Northern Greece was a more temperate climate, with much colder and much wetter winters than the south. More rain falls in the west than the east, while the Aegean islands receive even less. Temperatures rarely reach extremes, though snowfalls do occur in the mountaintops. 
the generally mild weather permitted outdoor activity for most of the year. There is a good deal of wind, in particular, the northwest wind that blows across the Aegean in the summer, so regularly that the Greeks called it the Atesian, or annual wind. The winds from the sea can make the climate more agreeable on the coast than the plains inland, which are hemmed in by mountains and can be unpleasantly hot. The winds, though, can make the sea very dangerous. The mountains are cut by many ravines and narrow valleys, but the rivers and streams often only flow in the winter or after storms, meaning most of the time they are dried up. And since there are very few lakes, ponds, and springs in Greece, farming depended on the limited annual rainfall. Drought was a constant threat. A dry winter meant a lean year, and a prolonged drought meant hunger and poverty for an entire village. Torrential rainstorms, on the other hand, could send water rushing down the mountainsides, flooding the fields and destroying the crops. Life on the sea was equally unpredictable, as violent storms could wreck ships. Considering the extent to which the Greeks were at the mercy of the land, sky, and sea, it is no wonder that the gods they worshipped were personifications of the elements and forces of nature. Now, I want to touch on briefly the food resources that Greece provides. I plan on doing an entire episode on ancient Greek cuisine later so we will dive into greater detail when we look into the everyday lives of the Greeks. But for now, we will just discuss what is grown and kept on most small-sized family farms. Greek soil and climate supported what is known as the Mediterranean Triad, grain, grapes, and olives, which become bread, wine, and olive oil respectively, and are still the staples of the modern Greek diet. The primary grains are wheat, barley, and oats but barley was most prevalent, as Greece's generally poor land was not as rich for the tastier wheat to flourish. In addition, various beans, vegetables, fruits, and nuts were also grown. The consumption of meat was very rare, as most could not afford the luxury, but the Greeks were fond of fish. Cheese was also consumed, but the Greeks did not eat butter. They thought it was barbaric, and they drank very little milk. Instead, they drank water, or my personal favorite, wine. The wine was diluted with water, of course. The Greeks believed in moderation, not inebriation, unless you were at a religious festival or a symposium. There will be more on that later. Olive trees don't require too much tending. They yield one year off, one year on, and they survive for hundreds of years. The olive was extremely important for the ancient Greeks. In myth, it was Athena's gift of the olive tree to the Athenians that won her the position as their patron deity. In addition to tasting great with bread, olive oil could be used for bathing purposes, as fuel for lamps, and a base for perfumes. Various spices were used to enhance the flavor of food, particularly honey for sweetening, as a substitute for sugar. This led to a good deal of beekeeping. There was not enough pasture land to keep many horses and cattle, as they needed to graze, and the Greeks couldn't afford to waste such precious land. Since they were such costly luxuries, owning cattle or horses was a status symbol for the rich. Cattle was used for their meat and hides. Horses were the most expensive to maintain and were really only useful for riding and pulling light chariots. However, sheep and goats could graze on mountainous lands that could not be farmed, and so they fit well into the agricultural framework of Greece. As suppliers of wool, cheese, meat, and skins, they held great economic importance. Oxen, though, were essential for plowing and pulling heavy loads, and mule and donkeys were used for transportation. A farmer who did not have an oxen would have been considered poor, 
It was that essential. Ancient Greece was essentially a land of small farmers. It has been estimated that even during their peak population in the classical period, that up to 90% of citizens were engaged in agriculture. One of the major unifying forces within Greece was these farmers' devotion to their small agricultural plain and its surrounding hillsides, and their willingness to die defending it. And the primary disunifying force was the perpetual tension between those who had much land and those who had little or none. This social class tension would lead to all sorts of problems down the road. On the next episode, we will begin our historical narrative, or at least what the Greeks thought their narrative was, as we take a look at the Greek creation story. So tune in next time to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 2, The Greek Genesis.